Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. I invite you this morning to turn to the book of 1 Kings, the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And uh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at uh, verse one through eighteen, almost the entire chapter uh, of First Kings today together. As we're as you're turning there, last Sunday uh, we looked at developing a healthy relationship with time. After the service was over, with honestly, uh, sometimes you get good uh, response to messages. Uh, from people say, man, I really enjoyed that message or I really needed that message. Uh, that one happened to be one that uh, a lot of people said, man, I really, I just personally felt like I needed that and uh, really enjoyed that message. Uh, but then there's also, I know this, that, that for every person that hears something and thinks, man, that was good or that was encouraging, someone else might be sitting there thinking, that wasn't as encouraging to me because I'm in a different place spiritually. And so many of you may have sat here last Sunday and thinking, great, managing my time for the glory of God and for my good. That's just one more thing in my life that's broken that I need to get together. Add that to the list of things that I need to fix. And I want to present to you this morning that you are looking at it all the wrong way. There may be some things in your life that fall short. There may be some things in your life that are broken. Actually, according to scriptural truth, there's a lot of things in our lives that are broken. None of us have arrived. All of us are broken. All of us fall short of the glory of God. It is only through him that we are made anything in Christ. And so, yes, all of us are broken. All of us have some degree of brokenness in our life. But if you're trying to fix it on your own, you're going to the wrong source. Because fixing and healing and restoration only happens in the power of God. You see, you may feel like this morning, I'm at my limit and I'm barely holding it together. And maybe feel like you're about to just throw in the towel or you want to run away or you're wanting to give up on something or someone. This morning, I want to kind of flip the table a little bit on the optimistic nature of the message last Sunday and kind of look at the reality and address an elephant in the room. Is it burnout and depression are real things, aren't they? And I believe that his church, his embassy of heaven, needs to be a place where we get real with the struggles that we go through, with the things that we face, because we are still We are healed in the name of Jesus, but we are still living in a place that is shattered and broken by sin. See, if somebody told you that you get saved, all your problems are going to go away, you're not going to have any more struggles, they lied to you. Because salvation is not a call to just have all your problems to go away. Salvation is a call to take up your what? Help me out. Your cross and follow him. Christianity is sometimes difficult. And Christianity and living your faith will sometimes lead to you wearing down and wearing out. That's why it's important to know, where do I go for my strength? And if you're trying to find it just in yourself, you're looking in the wrong place. See, stress and anxiety and burnout are at all-time highs today. Statistics report that people are reporting stress-related illnesses and stress-related things, mental illness and burnout and anxiety and all of those things are taking place. And just because you're a Christian, don't buy the fact that it will make you immune to those things and to those effects. Matter of fact, living with an intent to bring glory to God in a world and in a culture that is bent against God and his kingdom is going to bring in more pressure for us to conform to the way of the world. Therefore, our life as a Christian, is going to get, tr- get tougher. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will suffer persecution. If you follow me, you will suffer hard things. Add to that the truth that there's a pressure on a lot of people that they put themselves under as Christians, I believe, that being a good Christian means I have to have it all together at all times. 
See, I live under that pressure a lot of times. I think as a pastor, I need to have it all together all the time. If I don't have a smile on my face, if I am not like walking on cloud nine all the time, I am failing in some way. And the truth is, there is nothing that I will face in this world that will ever defeat me in the name of Jesus Christ. There is nothing. He has promised that I am indestructible until he is finished with me. But the truth is that as the fiery darts and as the things come, things begin to take its toll. We have to understand that God's a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's one person existing in three distinct entities and in three distinct ways. We are developed and we are created in the image of God, which means we're triune existence as well. We are made of mind, body, and spirit. And all three of those aspects of us can be affected by burnout, by depression, by exhaustion, by fear, by all of those things. Your body can have physical effects to fear and anxiety. Your spirit will have effects, will, have, uh, will, will respond with effects to fear and anxiety. And it will lead to eventual burnout. It leads to this, this idea that I just can't go on. I just cannot continue like it is. And if I see it continuing to come, I just want to run away or I just want to check out. Unfortunately, that is where so many people get, even in their walk with Christ sometimes. You see, but we see also examples, and we think, man, this isn't normal. And a lot of people are left sitting there thinking, and they're sitting there on the verge of spiritual burnout. You're sitting there in spiritual downcastness, as the Bible says, or depression. And you're thinking, I'm the only one, because that's what Satan wants you to think. I'm the only one. Well, let me call your attention to a few examples from the Bible of people who went through a, spirit, a period of spiritual burnout. Uh, There was Paul who said in 2 Corinthians that he was troubled in every way during his missionary journeys. There was conflict coming from the outside, and there were fears and trouble welling up from the inside. That means he was going through just emotional and spiritual and mental torment in his service to Christ. The book of Lamentations written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was just constantly just an emotional wreck in the job that he was called to do for Christ. The best example that we see of spiritual burnout and depression is probably the text that we're going to look at in the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So as we begin to read this morning, here's two things I would like to accomplish in the time that we have together this morning. This is probably not going to seem like a a sermon like I normally preach, as more of it is going to be more like a, a Bible study as we look verses by verses and pull out these points that we apply to our lives. So if you are in that period right now where you feel like, man, I am just... I can't find passion. I can't find zeal. I can't find energy. I can't, I look at all of this and I look at my, my, my spirit of worship and I look at all those things and I think I'm just lacking something. I need a touch from God. This message is for you today. This message is for all of us today. The first thing I want to try to do is identify the marks of spiritual depression and burnout. Because if we are going to find out if we're burned out, we need to know the marks. What, is that, what does it look like? And then after that, I want to look how God lovingly lovingly nurtures us and calls us back from that season of burnout. So the first thing we have to consider is Elijah. Who is Elijah? The prophet Elijah uh, was a prophet that God had called at a time when Israel was against God. The leaders did not do what was right in the eyes of God. They did what was right in their own eyes, and it always led, it always seemed to lead to a problem. He served God faithfully for a really, really long time. He'd been living life for God's glory on full tilt, and he was at the point of being tired physically and spiritually exhausted by the time we come to our text in in chapter 19. And a couple of things that had happened leading up to chapter 19, God had sent him to King Ahab. 
And Ahab was bad enough on his own, but he was also, he had his queen named Jezebel was also wicked as well. The Bible took, ma- took note to mention that as well. The Jezebel was wicked too. And he was taken with a message from God to these two, uh, to these two royal figures uh, that God was going to punish their evil by sending drought to the land. Now, back in those days, you couldn't just walk into the, you walked into the king's castle and walk up to him and said, you know what? God is going to bring a famine in this land. He's going to bring a drought, and he's going to punish you for your wickedness because at that point, that would be the end of your life. So Elijah goes marching in to obey what God had said, and he goes in and he says these things, and all of a sudden, they're like off with his head or whatever it is that they say, and they seek out to kill him, and he has to go on the run again. And he goes and he lives by this little brook called Cherith, where God helps him out, but he has to continually keep moving and moving and moving to try to escape those who were after him. He was forced to camp by this creek, and then that creek moved up or, or dried up, and it eventually had to move on. He's continually packing, and he's unpacking everywhere he goes, and it does not necessarily tend to provide rest in your life and relaxation for your mind and your spirit. He was also used to teach a starving widow and her son a valuable lesson on faith in God's provision. He'd run 17 miles at one point to beat a chariot to the town of Jezreel. Elijah could run, man. And, uh, but he had run and done all of those things just recently before we get into chapter 19. And also he had battled with the pagan priests to prove God's superiority. Because of that, all of those priests were ordered to be killed by Elijah Jezebel found out about that, and she's like, okay, Elijah, I'm going to make sure you suffer the same fate that all those priests did too. I will have your head by the end of the day. So by the time we pick up in chapter 19, this is the things that have taken place in Elijah's life. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little down. I'm feeling like the world's kind of crashing down on me, but I don't have somebody chasing after me to kill me right now. Maybe you do, and if you do, let somebody know today. We want to help you out, Okay. But understand spiritually, we may not have somebody chasing after us like that physically to do that, but spiritually the Bible does say that there is an enemy out there who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are being hunted day in, day out. We are under attack day in, day out. And those attacks do take their toll from time to time. So what do we do when the enemy is pressing hard and we begin to falter in our faith and falter because we are weak beings? So we have to identify these marks of spiritual burnout. Here's what we see in Elijah that proved to us that he was spiritually burned out. Remember, we don't need to look at Elijah as a bad guy. He had done a lot of great things for God in obedience. He had reached a season in his life where he was exhausted and it began to take its toll. And so if we look, pick up in verse number three. In, in Elijah. And right after that, we see is where Jezebel says, I have vowed to kill you, Elijah. And in verse number three, it says, and when he saw that, or when he heard the queen's decree, he arose and he went for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah. Elijah, even though he had seen God do incredible things and protect him throughout his entire life and through his ministry, he believed for some reason now that the threat of Jezebel was a genuine threat. For some reason, it kind of got in his head, you know what, she may actually succeed at this now. I don't know what it was that made him think that, but he began to believe the lies of the enemy. You ever been there before? When you get to where you start to believe the lies of the enemy? Because the enemy is not just a roaring lion. The Bible says he's a master deceiver. He'll try to deceive you into thinking and seeing things that are not true in God's economy. He'll try to get us to just see what's going on and without the evidence of God. 
Here, Elijah began to look at things and he was paralyzed by fear. He was afraid of the threat against his life. Just like Elijah and having a slanderous, wicked person who wanted to end his life, we have a slanderous, wicked person who is after us. And we have to be careful and remember that we are constantly under attack by him. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. So if he can't get you to sin, he's going to try to remind you of all the times you did before. He's going to try to get you to live under defeat all the time. For some reason, Elijah's faith, had just had, which had been tested before, and which had been tested before, and God proved himself faithful. For some reason right now, he felt like, I don't know if God will be faithful this time. And he was paralyzed by fear, so he runs away. The next thing he does, and this is a mark of spiritual burnout as well, is isolation. Look at what, it's, look at what happens in verse number four. It says, after he, uh, after he went away, he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, for, I'm looking at the latter part of verse number three and then into four. It says, and he left his servant there. After he gets to Judah, he leaves his servant there, but he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree or what's also known as a broom tree. So this is interesting. Maybe it's to protect his servant or his assistant that's traveling with him because he's thinking, I'm not gonna bring, I'm not gonna bring death upon you. If it's coming to me, I'm gonna be the only one that dies. Maybe he does it as an act of protection or whatever. But, I, but Elijah is so far down and so far beaten down and so far paralyzed by fear that he says, there is no one and nothing that I need around me because nothing can help. This is one of the signs that we are in a downcast and a downtrodden state is when we think that we are abandoned and alone and we begin to drive everyone else away. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? We think that we're alone. We think people have given up on us. So what do we do? We start pushing people away. And I just want to isolate. I just want to be by myself. I just want to shut everything out because we've come to a place in that paralyzing fear that we think there is nothing and there is no one who is for me anymore. Elijah had gotten to a point where he was God's man but he felt that God had given up, so he isolated himself away. If you're experiencing feelings of burnout, you probably feel this morning like you just want to be alone, hold up somewhere, not being bothered by anyone or anything, because it is that unspoken urge to find departure and to find rest. And understand that is a natural occurrence when we are approaching a state of weakness. The next phase is hopelessness. In verse number four, the latter part says he sat down under the juniper tree, and what does he do? He requests for himself that he might die. And he said, it's enough now. Lord, take away my life. What's, I, what, what, what's Elijah saying here? He's like, God, I'm suicidal. I, I, I have nothing else to live for. I can't take it anymore. Life, living life is just too difficult for me. It's better off that I am no longer here. Whatever is running through Elijah's mind at that time, we can't really get an understanding, and I don't want to try to stand in Elijah's mind. But we can probably all come to the point where we understand or we know someone or have heard of someone who got to that point where they said, I'm better off dead than I am alive. That my life no longer values. Here's what we say when we begin to think that. Here's what we're saying. We're saying to God, the creator and the sustainer, your plan for my life has gone so bad that I want to cut that plan off. Now, there's a lot of people, and let me, let me correct some bad theology. There are a lot of people today who say that to commit suicide is the unpardonable sin. And someone who commits suicide will end up, even if they had followed Christ or had been saved, they will go to hell. That it eradicates their salvation. That is not true. 
There is no sin, no sin that can overcome the grace of God. But I do believe that that demonic influence and satanic lies and deception can affect a Christian so much that they no longer hear the voice of truth that is calling out, you are chosen, you are beloved, you are anointed, like we just sang a moment ago, that we no longer hear that voice of truth and all we hear is the voice of Satan saying, you're worthless, you're nothing, just end it. That's where Elijah was. The one thing that he did, and this was the transition, and this was, his, this was his saving grace at this moment, was who did he call out for to help him, to assist him in the suicide? Not Dr. Kevorkian, he calls out on God. And you think God's gonna assist him in that? No, because God is the giver of life, not the taker. He will take it, but he is giving it eternally to us as well. He's like, I'm not done with you yet, Elijah. I still have stuff for you, and I'm not taking it just yet. So we get into this hopelessness. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Second leading cause for 15 to 34-year-olds. So those students that are in Tennessee right now, that is the second leading cause of their death in their age range and generation right now, suicide. We're living in a time of epidemic depression and anxiety, and we're living in an epidemic time where we as a nation are succumbing to the deception of the enemy. As the church of Jesus Christ, we have to be able to speak the loving truth of God that brings purpose and brings healing and brings restoration to the souls of men. What's your role in that? So that hopelessness. And one alarming statistic that haunts me is the number of ministers and clergymen today who are submitting to this and surrendering to this as well. It affects everyone. And don't just think, well, man, if I just... If I just, you know, don't just think it's not something that happens in the church house. It happens in the church house as well. Check in with your kids. Check in with one another. Ask, how are you doing? What purpose are you finding in life? How are you finding God speak into your life? And let me say this too. If you are at that place where you are feeling feelings of suicide, you need to tell somebody and get help. There is medical help. God has created that as well. Get that kind of help that you need. And don't be ashamed. Don't leave today. If that is on your mind and you haven't talked to anyone, talk to someone today. Let us help you try to find that help. Let us help you with that. The last, the last mark of spiritual burnout is inferiority. Verse number four, he says, Oh Lord, take away my life. And why does he say that? Why has he gotten to that point? He says, because I'm not any better than my father's. What he's saying there is, I've looked at and I've compared myself and I'm so beaten down with guilt and shame of having fallen into despair and burnout because he saw everything beginning to fall apart and everything he tried to do. In Elijah's mind, there is no one who is following God at this moment. Jezebel and Ahab have won and God has lost and God lost because Elijah wasn't good enough. That's where Elijah had come to. Anybody ever been there before? You ever put that kind of our pay scale? God is the one who holds everything. I'm the one who has to hold it all together. Remember, that's way above our pay scale. God is the one who holds everything in his hand. But Elijah had come to this feeling of of inferiority. I am no better than my father's. He got there by playing the comparison game. See, Elijah's relationship with God had become production-based. He had been a machine for God, man. He had done some amazing things. God had put him in the, in, in the position of a lot of miracles. There was a famine, and, and God used Elijah to pronounce for rain to fall again. So a lot of people looked at Elijah and thought, this dude has got some power. This dude is near to God. 
And Elijah got to the point where he liked that and he started reading his own press. But on that came a lot of pressure too. He began to think if I'm not producing and if I'm not doing amazing, miraculous things and God's not using me to do that, he's mad at me or something is wrong here. I gotta get back to that. And he's grinding away and grinding away and grinding away. And God is in a season right now where he's saying, we're not gonna do much, just wait. And Elijah can't handle that. And he got there by playing that comparison game. He wasn't better than his father's, which meant that he's sitting there under the tree. He's comparing himself to all the people before that he respected or admired. And he said, I can't be like them. I'm not doing what they did anymore. I'm worth nothing. In the church, there is a great temptation for that to take place. We'll look at one another and say, man, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, man, they look like they are just, they've got it all together. Why can't I ever seem like I got it like they do? And we'll play the comparison game. Especially in a day of social media, it's easy to look at people on, on Facebook and look at their filtered lives on Twitter and Instagram and think, man, why does my life not measure up like theirs does? And all that begins to play in, and then I get this feeling of inferiority. And what you've done is you've bought the lie that your value is less. But here's what the truth of God's word says. For God so loved the world. That's, an, that, 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 that's that whole world, that cosmos, all of mankind. He loved us equally. You are no more or no less valued than anyone else that you sit beside. It doesn't matter how they're producing or what you seem to be producing. You are no more or less valued in the eyes of your creator than anyone else. God is not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance, that he is not a respecter of persons. He loves us all equally. And that equal love is more than anyone else can love you. If they were to combine all the love in the world, God loves you more than that. God will never give up on you. He will never look at you and say, I'm done with you. I'm through with you. It'd be better off if you'd never existed. But Elijah was buying all of those lies. So he had all of these marks of burnout. But then we see something amazing happen. God ministers to Elijah at this time. So the question is, how does God bring us back from burnout? How did God bring Elijah back from burnout? Understand this, is that God's desire is for us to bring him glory. God's desire is not for us always to be happy. It's just not. Sometimes he'll get more glory out of our sadness because our sadness brings us closer to him. Sometimes he gets more glory out of our brokenness because when he puts us back together, he receives the glory for that. Sometimes his desire is for us to have happiness, but his desire at all times is no matter what's going on for us to have consistent peace and joy that passes all understanding. And the only way for that to happen is for him to continually minister to us. That means he never turns his back. He never turns away and is not looking at us. Understand that whatever you're going through in life right now, has at some point passed the death of God and gotten his seal of approval. Now that may make you mad at God. Why did he put the seal of approval on it? I can tell you why, for his glory and for your good. And that may be really, really hard to understand why you're going through what you're going through right now. But that's why he did it. But his desire is for us to bring him glory. And the path is not promised to be easy. Jesus said we'd suffer persecution. We see 
tons of examples of that in scripture. And just because the book of Revelation has been finished and closed and we're living in 2020, it doesn't mean that we're gonna face any less persecution than what Peter and Paul and some of those people that we celebrate in scripture are gonna go through. Just because we live in 2020, America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, doesn't mean that those freedoms can be taken, can't be taken away at some point. And we're right back in this point where, we're gonna, we, where our life might be on the line for following him. Say, man, this is a great man. I'm really encouraged today. We're getting ready to get into the encouraging part, okay? God knows that the call to live for him is a call to die, and it will take its toll. This is why he's promised us that he'll never leave us, that he'll never forsake us. He desires to refresh each of us and allow us to be joyful in his kingdom. The way that God ministers to Elijah in this passage is teach us how to respond to burnout and spiritual depression. So there's six things real quickly I want to give you. Um, from right here from this passage that we see. How God ministers to Elijah, I believe, is points that we can take when we're facing burnout to try to apply in our life. First of all, God calls us and asks us and models for us to get some rest. Say, man, that's, that's really, really practical. It is. I'm not just talking about physical rest, though. I'm talking about emotional rest and spiritual rest. A lot of us are good at physically resting, man. We live, in the, we live in the age of Netflix and chill and binge watching. We're good at physically resting. We've got, I mean, mattresses are like, they're making them a science now. They've got machines to help you sleep better. They got all kinds. You can put on your watch at night and it'll monitor how you sleep and tell you what you need to do to get better sleep. Physical rest, that's one thing. But emotional rest, mental rest. We have these little devices now that make it really, really hard for our mind to shut off. Right? And when we're bored or we can't sleep at night, what do we do? Go right to this and we'll kill some time. And what it does is it completely, completely invades what the Bible says God speaks to us through. A still small voice. And when he says in Psalm 46, to be still and know that he's God. Get some rest. Look at verse number five. It says, and as he lay... And slept under the juniper tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake that was baked on the coals uh, and a cruise or a pitcher of water at his head. And he did eat and he drank and he laid him down again. Dude is getting some naps, all right? So he is, I mean, this is the dream, the Baptist dream. Sleep, eat, sleep, repeat, right? All right, in verse number seven, and the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Bless God, the same thing. Arise and eat again. Can I get a witness, right? Get some rest. And he says this, and here's why. Arise and eat because the journey that you're about to take is too great for you. When we are burnt out and we are downcast, the last thing we need to do is turn it into full tilt because we will turn things into a wreck when we do that. What God is saying here and what he modeled to us as well is that we need to get some rest. Most of us probably don't get the doctor's recommended amount, eight hours a day of rest that we need. We operate under sleep deprivation. Anybody with me? If you have children, you operate under sleep deprivation. It's just a way of life. Or if your grandkids are with you for a weekend or forever, you have sleep deprivation going on, right? What happens in sleep deprivation? In certain stages, we begin to make mistakes. In certain stages, our moods become different and we begin thinking, this is not me. Your spouse begins thinking, you're not the person I married. It's because I don't have, I used to sleep before we got married. Now I don't. Spiritual rest is usually the last thing that we look to in our lives. 
in our busy and hectic lives, our spiritual side is usually the last thing that gets nurtured. But Psalm 46 tells us that we must come to a place where we are still and where we know and we rest in the fact that he is God and we are not. God invites us to shut down at times, spiritually. God invites us to do those things. Look what happens. He models rest to us in Scripture. God rested on the seventh day. Jesus, so many times in his ministry, he rested. He was in Capernaum. He departed to pray. He rested continually through his ministry in his humanity. A God who doesn't need to rest did because he knew that we needed to take that cue from him. He knew we needed it. In verses 5 and five through 7, Elijah's worn out completely. He's tired. He goes, he's run away, and it's almost like he just cannot, he cannot run anymore. He collapses under this juniper tree, and he says, I am done, I am finished, kill me. And in his waiting for death, he just collapses and falls asleep. And here's where we see God's grace and mercy. He sends a messenger that goes and fixes him a meal and wakes him up and says, hey, man, you need something to eat. And then he eats and he falls back asleep again because his body just can't fight it anymore. The angel lets him sleep and he comes and he says, here, have some more food because the journey you're about to take is great. There's a couple things that really jumped out to me personally in here. Is that while I'm resting, God's still working. God's still got it. See, I get, a, I get this feeling, I don't know if some of you do too, but when I am really stressed and when I am tired and I'm at wit's end, you know what I do? I don't rest. Because I think I got to work harder. I got to kick it into overdrive and do even more. I got to fix this somehow. When it seems like things are out of control, I got to fix this and I got to fix this now. So I'll start spinning and I'll start. And then what happens is mistakes come and more, more, more exhaustion comes into play. And things are 10 times worse. What God is saying, rest. And what rest teaches us is that we don't have to fix it all. God is still working his plan. He can handle it. While Elijah slept, God provided what he needed next. While Elijah took that time off, God was still working and, and, and doing what he needed to do according to his sovereign plan, and he was taking care of us. Resting gives God the opportunity to show you that he's there. It gives opportunity to show you that God is still there. Taking, uh, taking rest is something that we don't naturally do, but we must do if we're going to get in this for the long haul because the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Taking rest allowed God to insert himself into Elijah's predicament. In uh, verse number eight and nine, we see the second thing that we need to do when we're facing spiritual burnout, and that is get to God's presence. Where you rest and how you rest is important. I'm not just saying, hey man, just take some time off. Where and how you rest is vitally important. And this is where we see. We must rest in the presence of God. Look at verse eight. It says, he arose and he did eat and he drank and he went in the strength of that meat for 40 days and 40 nights unto Oreb, the mountain of God. In my Bible, I've got that circled and underlined and highlighted. Oreb is the mountain of God. Oreb is really important in just a minute, I'll tell you. And he came thither to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So after the rest, he goes 40 days, and he gets to this place called Mount Oreb. What's interesting about Mount Oreb is it's also known as Mount Sinai. 
Some amazing things happened at Mount Oreb or Mount Sinai. It was the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to Israel, and he met with him while he was leading the children of Israel to give him advice and to give him wisdom. It's also the place where Jesus was believed to have gone through his fasting and his temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. It's also believed to be the place where Moses or uh, where the two messengers came down and uh, at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, Moses and Elijah, they came down and Jesus met with God there. So Mount Oreb is the place where people met with God. It's the presence of God. Elijah wakes up, he's nourished, and he's needing help. He's needing sustenance more than just the food. He's needing spiritual sustenance. So what does he do? He runs to Oreb because he knows that's where he meets with God. I want to ask you a question this morning. What is your Mount Oreb? Where is your Mount Oreb? Or how do you find Mount Oreb in your life? Where is the place where you meet with God? The place or the, or the situation that you know you can go to because you know that that is the place where God meets with you. Not that he's not with you all the time, but that place where everything is shut down and shut out and God is there and you stay there until God speaks. Where is that place? If you don't have that, find that place. The smartest thing that Elijah did in his season of burnout was to get away from the junk, to get away from all of that and get into God's presence. See, before burnout, he isolated himself. He's like, everybody get away. And the only thing he wanted of God was to end it. Now, he wanted to get in the presence of God and hear what God wanted. So we see him beginning to turn around. So where's your Mount Oreb? Because I guarantee, if you must find your Mount Oreb, because the third thing is desperately important, and the only place you can do the third thing is at your Mount Oreb, and the third thing is this, pour out your heart to God. Pour out your heart to God. Look at verse number 10. I love at the end of actually verse number nine where he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God shows up and says, Elijah, what are you doing? As if God needed to ask. God already knows. God already knows. So why does God do that? I think it's interesting because he's showing I care. He shows up to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing? He's showing I care. And another thing he does is he calls him by name. He doesn't call him by his title. He calls him by his name. He doesn't say, what are you doing, prophet of God? He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He individualizes him and he calls him out because he knows that Elijah has spent his whole life trying to be the prophet rather than just to be the child of God. A lot of times that's what we do. We spend our whole life in performance mode thinking, I gotta be the Christian. I gotta be the right Christian. I gotta do the right things. I gotta say the right things. I gotta... And we forget that we are people healed by God. And when he died on the cross, he died not only for the sins of the whole world, but he died individually for you too. And he has an individual plan for you and for me, for his glory and our good. He called out to Elijah. He disarms Elijah there. And he says, Elijah, tell me what's going on in your life. And boy, Elijah does it. Look at verse number 10. And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. Basically what he's saying is, as King James is a really nice way of saying, Elijah looking at God saying, where have you been? For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've slain your prophets with the sword. And I am the only one that's left. So this whole idea that you had for Israel, this whole idea that you had for a people of God, they ain't here anymore. I'm the only one that's left, so get me out of here. You ever felt like you're the only one that cares? 
You ever feel like you're the only one? It feels like everything else is going crazy and it begins to wear on you. You feel like you're the only one and you're isolated and you feel like God's failed you. That's where Elijah's at right now. In Elijah's eyes, everything is falling apart. Everything he's worked for, everything he's lived for and invested his time in is gone. And Elijah feels like God has slighted him. And so he just pours out his heart. He pours out his heart. Now as a prophet, he knows how to talk to God and this ain't it. A lot of people might look at that and think, man, how disrespectful could you be to the Father God? But this was God's, God already knew Elijah's heart. God already knew that this is what his heart was feeling. And we have to understand that. You may, try to, you may try to sugar up your words when you're praying to God and when you're talking to God. God already knows what's in your heart. He wants to hear us pour out our heart to him. Never make light of God's righteous nature as the God of the cosmos, but also never make light of God's loving nature as your heavenly Father. See, sometimes we go to extremes. We either think that God is too much of a pushover or we think that God is just too much of a, just a, a taskmaster. He's right there in the middle. He's a loving heavenly father. Yes, he's going to guide us and he has a plan and it has to go his way, but he is also there and tending to us and nurturing us and he will never let us go. The, thing, the other thing that we have to do is learn to live without the need for the spectacular. Learn to live without the need for the spectacular. Elijah, as a prophet, had been given a front seat to some pretty intense things that God had done. He had seen God's power. He had seen God's miracles. He had been used to bring some of those miracles down. When, when he had that, the throwdown on the mountain and had calling down rain and fire with the, the prophets of Baal and all of those types of things were going on, he had all that taking place. Elijah was right there and seen that, and he had seen God move in mighty ways. He saw a lot more impressive things than we sometimes have seen. The problem with that was Elijah had gotten used to the spectacular. And he had gotten to a point where he believed that the only way that God is moving is when he's doing these spectacular things. But God doesn't just work in the spectacular. God works in the mundane, minute things of our life every day too. He's in everything. And he's working at all times in everything too. 1 Kings 19, 11. Here, so here's how God deals with Elijah. It's interesting. He says to Elijah, leave the cave. He says, go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains in two and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entering of the cave and behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again. So why does God come to him in these three massive, massive displays of power, yet he doesn't speak through any of them? And then after all those three displays of power, he comes in with a still small voice because he was training Elijah that yes, I work through moving mountains, Yes, I work through fire. Yes, I work through all of those things. But right now in your life, I am choosing to speak in a still small voice because what you need is not more hype. What you need is not more big stuff. What you need is to know and believe that I am here in the middle of the mundane and that I am here in the middle of what you perceive to be your struggle as well. See, a lot of times when we're down, we get angry with God because we think that God's job for us is delivering us 
from everything immediately. And we only, we set up God and say, the only way you're, you can possibly work is to deliver me from this trouble. But God has promised us that his will is not always deliverance, but his promise is continual presence. He's constantly there. And what God was teaching Elijah is, I ain't gonna send an earthquake. I ain't gonna send this to prove this to you. What I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna speak to your heart right now. And he gives direction. See, what we have to understand in the midst of our depression, in the midst of our burnout, it's important to remember that God is consistently present and he's consistently ministering to us in ways that we don't often understand or in ways that we haven't trained ourselves to see. Sometimes God does move in mighty displays, but the consistent work that he does in our hearts is just as significant. Don't make light of the fact that God speaks through this word every single time you open it. Don't make light of the fact that he speaks through brothers and sisters of faith. Don't make light of that. And that's what leads us to the next thing. God's advice is for him to go find community with other people. Find strength in community with other people. In verse number 16, or in verse number 15 and 16, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, I want you to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And then I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat and Albamiloah, shalt thou anoint to be the prophet in thy room. Now that phrase right there means, I want you to anoint Elisha to be your assistant, your servant, the prophet in waiting. He will succeed you when your time is over. But what he is saying is, I want you to go and I want you to find faithful people. Because remember, what was, what, was, what was Elijah's sadness over? He thought he was the only one faithful that was left. So what does God do? He says, you're not the only one that's left. Here are three men. I want you to go to them right now. And I want you to buddy up with Elisha. And you together are going to help to bear one another's burdens. And then... When the time has come, he is going to literally take your burden. He's going to take the mantle of prophet, and I'm going to bring you to me. That this is the this is the the, the the antithesis of isolation here, right? And this is what happens when so many people are facing burnout. They're like, man, I can't get to church. I don't want to be in the life group. I don't want to go to Sunday school today, man. Everybody else is just doing so good, and I just feel like I'm embarrassed to be there. Those are the lies of Satan. Don't buy into that. This is a community of believers and faith, and we find strength with one another. This is why we have the life groups, why we have our Sunday school classes, our Bible studies. We share prayer requests with one another because we may worship together in a big group, but we grow together in groups. Find strength in community with one another. And then lastly this morning, because I know the hour is getting late, ultimately, let God keep score. Just let God keep score. A lot of times our burnout and our anxiety comes from the fact that we think that we've got, we've got an idea of what things need to be and what things need to look like. And so we put, we put up this scoreboard and we think, here's the score, and this will tell me if I'm doing good. It'll tell me if I'm doing better than everybody else, or it'll tell me if I'm keeping up with everybody else. We need to understand that when it comes to following Jesus, the only scoreboard that matters is Jesus. The only keeping up that matters is keeping close to him. Let God keep score. In verse number 18, I just closed up my Bible there. Basically what, what uh, God tells Elijah, he says, look, Elijah, you think that nobody's there? He said, but I have reserved 7,000 
faithful people in Jerusalem who have yet to bow their knee and kiss the feet of Baal. You thought that nobody was there. You bought the lie. There are 7,000 people in Jerusalem who refuse to bow to Baal. You've not failed because I'm not going to let you fail because you've forgotten that all this stuff that you're doing ain't about you. It's about me. And you were at your strongest when you inserted yourself the least. We develop these scoreboards and we develop all of these things that, <laughs> that we think, man, this will tell whether I'm doing good. This will tell whether I'm a success. Let God keep score and check in with God frequently. Say, God, what's the score looking like? What's the score looking like? Help me to see it the way you do. When we're down and we're out and we're downcast at what it is, we're not looking at God. And I don't say that to pressure you. I say this because this is something that I've had to walk through in my life too. And I'm still trying, trying to walk through it. Be honest with you, man. I'm a melancholic personality. I have to remind myself of this all the time. Yesterday, Satan knew I was preaching this today. So yesterday was not a good day for me. Just mentally and in my headspace and all that. So I had to preach this to myself this morning before I got up today. And what he did for Elijah, he'll do for you. But you've got to get to him. You've got to find that rest in him.